Welcome to Fangfology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. We're your hosts, Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. Both of us are great lovers of vampire fiction, vampire mythology, and the long-reaching impact of the vampire archetype on culture as a whole. Our friendship formed in large part thanks to our mutual interest in the topic, and over the years it has only grown stronger. We wanted to create something that gave us an opportunity to delve into some of the more specific and unexplored elements of vampires in the arts and culture of the past two centuries or so. And our result is Fangpology. Every episode we'll dive into a story about a piece of vampire-related pop culture that you may not be familiar with, and offer a detailed study of its secrets, its peculiarities, and all the reasons why it matters. Vampires are one of the greatest metaphors we have for exploring what makes us human, and we want to celebrate that by looking at the stories that may have passed you by. We hope you enjoy our series, and we hope that you take as much pleasure in the unknown as we do. And now, on with the show. Vampire musicals never work. It's one of the deep-seated rules of Broadway theatre. While there are many examples that prove this assertion, today we're taking a look at the one that started it all. What happens when you take one of German language theatre's biggest hits and add a hefty dose of Broadway egos, bad puns, feuding producers and lifelong grudges? you get one of the biggest financial flops in musical history. This is the story of Dance of the Vampires. The story begins in 1967 with a film called The Fearless Vampire Killers. Who says vampires are no laughing matter? (laughs) They certainly are. Written, directed by, and starring Roman Polanski, the film was his fourth directorial feature and the predecessor to his major Hollywood breakout hit Rosemary's Baby. It's a comedy spoof that takes shots at the then-popular Hammer Horror franchise, and it was for this film that Polanski was introduced to his future wife, actress Sharon Tate. The production, however, was a fraught one. MGM, the studio behind its American release, wanted to market it as a much goofier comedy than Polanski intended. In the end, they cut 12 minutes worth of material from the film, overdubbed the actor's strong European accents, and added a cartoon prologue. Polanski disapproved, and the film was poorly reviewed upon release. It quickly sank into obscurity, overshadowed by Polanski's other films as well as the tragedies and scandals in his personal life. In 1969, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family while eight months pregnant with her and Polanski's child. In 1977, Polanski pleaded guilty to engaging in unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor after he drugged and raped a 13-year-old girl. He then fled to France to avoid charges and he has lived there ever since. Fearless Vampire Killers was never the kind of movie that seemed primed to be adapted into a lavishly high-concept musical. But Polanski felt differently, and he spearheaded the development of his film into what would become known as Tans de Vampire. So, what is Tanz de Vampira? 
In many ways, it's a very straightforward vampire story, not unlike the Christopher Lee Dracula movies that Polanski's film was parodying. The story introduces Professor Abronzius and Alfred, his hapless young assistant, as they venture into the tundra of the Carpathian Mountains looking for vampires. They stumble into a small town populated with suspicious locals covered in garlic, who insist that there's no such thing as vampires. Alfred then meets Sarah Chagall, the beautiful daughter of the lecherous innkeeper, a young woman who wants nothing more than to venture into the world outside of her home, and also have a good bath. Alfred falls instantly in love with Sarah, but she has another suitor, the mysterious Graf von Krolock, the vampire who terrorises the local village. He offers her eternal life and power, and invites her to the midnight ball at his castle. Later, she deceives her parents, as well as Alfred, and sneaks off to the party against their demands. Alfred and the Professor follow, ostensibly to save her, but also to rid the world of the vampire plague. Sarah, however, is clearly more interested in accepting the Count's seductive offer, and Alfred becomes preoccupied with fending off the advances of the Count's enamoured son, Herbert. Eventually, the trio escape from the castle, but not before Sarah is bitten by the Count. She then bites Alfred, and the show ends with the vampires winning their war against humanity. Tanz de Vampira is a simple concept executed with full-throated earnestness and a giddy self-awareness of its own camp appeal. It is brash and lascivious and takes itself just seriously enough while having fun with its inherently silly concept. It's not hard to see why it has won over so many fans worldwide over the 20-plus years since its premiere. Polanski returned to directorial duties for this musical, which began work in Vienna, Austria in the mid-1990s. For the music, he chose Jim Steinman, the producer and composer best known for his lavish rock-pop opera sound in collaborations with the likes of Meatloaf, Bonnie Tyler and Celine Dion. His work on the Meatloaf album Bat Out of Hell made him one of the most successful figures in his field, and to this day, it is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Over the course of his 50-plus years long career, Steinman has worked frequently in the musical's world, before Tanz der Vampira, he had finished collaborating with Andrew Lloyd Webber on the show Whistled Down the Wind, based on the film and novel of the same name. That show never made it to Broadway and was a critical disappointment, but its concept album, released in 1998, spawned a number of hit singles, including the boys' own song No Matter What. Steinman didn't have long to put together the music for Tanz der Vampira. According to him, he had under two months to write the entire show. This led to him reusing a lot of material from earlier projects, including prior musicals he'd written like The Confidence Man. Most infamously, the big romantic duet of the show, Total Finsternis, is a rewrite of his hit song Total Eclipse of the Heart, first recorded by Bonnie Tyler. That song had initially been written for a musical of Nosferatu that Steinman had worked on, and Steinman, thinking that they'd take the number out after previews, said, Who's ever going to know? It's Vienna! Once upon a time there was light in my life Jetzt zerbricht sie gleich deine Welt. Totale Finsternis. Totale The first production of Tanz der Vampire ran for three years in Vienna, where it was well received by critics and quickly attracted a devoted audience. Almost immediately, it attracted the attention of Broadway producers. Initially, Steinman and his manager David Sonnenberg wanted to bring the show to New York for the 1998 Broadway season under the title Dance of the Vampires. Steinman would translate his book and lyrics, and Polanski would return as director. Efforts were made to secure Polanski's involvement, but given that he cannot step foot in the United States lest he be arrested for drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl, 
that idea was swiftly dropped. While they looked for a new director, the opening was postponed to Halloween of 2000. That was then moved to fall 2001, and an announcement was made that Steinman himself would direct the show. To ease the concerns of potential investors, who had noted his lack of prior directorial experience, Steinman said, Half the show in Vienna I had to talk Polanski into doing, and did it behind his back a lot. He's a great guy, but he had a totally different vision. Eventually, however, a co-director was hired in the form of John Caird, a former director from the Royal Shakespeare Company whose musical credits included Les Miserables. David Ives, the award-winning playwright, was hired to reconfigure the book for American audiences. He was told to amp up the comedic aspects of the show. And here is where things started to go very wrong. The assumption from potential investors, the theatrical press, and Broadway in general was that Dance of the Vampires, adapted in a straightforward manner from the German-language original, could not work with cynical American audiences. Vampires were seen to be a dying trend, and Tanz Vampira was viewed as a throwback of a show, a high-concept mega-musical straight from the 1980s. You couldn't get away with making a show that was, for all intents and purposes, Phantom of the Opera with Fangs, so the claim was made. So, the solution was for Dance of the Vampires to become more of a comedy. David Ives said, We were told to put five jokes on every page. Steinman described the show as a big Wagnerian musical with lots of humour. A lot of it is pure Mel Brooks, and a lot of it Anne Rice. To the audience of the first invitation-only reading of the show, he declared it to be a musical for, quote, people who think musicals suck. The show struggled to raise the funds for its fall 2000 release, which led to further behind-the-scenes tensions. Eventually, two of the show's original producers, Anita Waxman and Elizabeth Williams, were removed from their roles, and Steinman's manager Sonnenberg assumed responsibilities as head producer. A source later told the New York Post that this was merely a move to ensure that Steinman had total control over the show. The show needed something to help calm the waters and refute the growing negative buzz surrounding its production. It was decided that, for the lead role of the vampire Count von Krolock, the show needed a major star. In Vienna, the role was originated by Steve Barton, probably best known to West End and Broadway audiences as the original Raoul in Phantom of the Opera. Barton tragically died in July 2001 at the age of 47. According to Michael Riedel of the New York Post, investors wanted a big star and looked towards the likes of David Bowie, Richard Gere, and even Placido Domingo. Then they made a very surprising choice. If they couldn't have Raoul, then why not get the Phantom himself? In August 2001, it was announced that Michael Crawford himself would be the lead in Dance of the Vampires. It would signal his glorious return to Broadway 14 years after Phantom became a smash hit and won him a Tony Award. Following Phantom, his biggest role had been in a Las Vegas show called EFX, then the most expensive and largest scaled theatre installation in the world. The show was a mega genre mash of effects, stunts, and the kind of visual splendour designed to appeal as wide an audience as possible. It features characters such as Harry Houdini, P.T. Barnum, Merlin, and King Arthur. H.G. Wells' Time Machine is a key plot point, and of course there are songs. Crawford, who was known for doing all of his own stunts on stage and screen, refused to use a stunt double for EFX except for one scene involving a quick costume change. The intense physicality of the show led to several injuries and heavy use of painkillers. He eventually left the show early in 1996 after a serious injury that led to a total hip replacement. Dance of the Vampires was billed as a big return to the stage for this huge star, and in a role that was so deliberately evocative of the part that had made him a musical icon. Still, it was a major risk. 
Crawford was a stage legend, but he wasn't exactly a big name in 2001. His diva reputation on the West End led to some bitchier theatre circles, nicknaming him Joan Crawford. The producers knew what they were getting into, of course, but it didn't take long for rumours to swirl that Crawford's diva antics were rearing their ugly head once more. According to the Times UK, Crawford asked for up to £20 million a year for a job that was planned to be a three-year commitment. His contract also allegedly asked for massive amounts of creative control, typically unheard of for an actor in his position, and first refusal on the role if it transferred to London or Los Angeles. The Times also reported that, while the contract itself did not come with exclusivity rights for a possible film adaptation, Crawford was keen to seek assurances that the part was his if a movie was ever made. This may have been because Crawford was allegedly a little bitter that he'd lost the role of the Phantom in the then-upcoming movie to Antonio Banderas. He would later be replaced by Hugh Jackman, then Gerard Butler. Crawford later claimed that the rumours of his pay packet were grossly exaggerated and that he would only be receiving $30,000 a week. Crawford expressed concern that his playing Count von Krolock would lead to unwanted comparisons with his past performance as the Phantom, and he wanted to avoid that. This is kind of odd, given that the show happily leans into all of the Phantom comparisons. Indeed, Tanzer Vampira is very Phantom-esque as a production, which is partly what makes it work, and partly why people like it. Crawford leaned heavily into the show's shift towards a more comedic tone as a way to further differentiate these performances. At the time, it made sense. The biggest show on Broadway was the musical adaptation of The Producers. That comedy had opened to rave reviews, won 12 Tony Awards, which was a record at the time, and had broken the record for the largest single-day box office ticket sales in theatre history. That's more than $3 million for those who were wondering. Musical comedies were the big thing in 2001, and everyone wanted a taste of The Producers, including Dance of the Vampires. Crawford reportedly rewrote most of his dialogue, leading David Ives to bemoan, I'm not a writer, I'm a stenographer. Crawford was also rewriting other people's lines. He was allegedly so afraid of his co-star, Star Trek Deep Space Nine actor René Aubergenois, getting all the big laughs that he demanded all his jokes be cut. According to the New York Post, this led to the pair all but squabbling on stage, trying to step on one another's lines whenever possible. Crawford reportedly wanted control over his costumes too, allegedly because he was worried about appearing too large on stage. Making matters even worse, Crawford committed to a highly questionable accent that seemed to be a blend of Cockney Gangster, Bela Lugosi, and the pizza chef from The Simpsons. He claimed that it made it easier for him to sing while wearing the fangs, but nobody seemed convinced by that argument. Perhaps that's why the character's name was changed to the more Italian-sounding Count Giovanni Capolidi Trovatore von Krolock. I am the Count Giovanni Coppolini Travatore von Crollo of the Sicilian side of the family. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, Broadway took a serious downturn, as did everything in New York City. For Dance of the Vampires, the show's creative team were based in London and couldn't get to New York to work on the show as logistical problems and flight cancellations became the norm following the attack. The show's opening was moved back a month to October 24th, officially because of these problems, but it would also emerge after the show closed that David Sonnenberg had had trouble raising his share of the investment. It was decided that the show needed more producers on board to help get it to that new opening date without further delays. In addition to this, a new creative team was put together. One man, set designer David Gallo, got the job in part because Steinman appreciated that he had described himself as, quote, probably the only set designer in America who subscribes still to Heavy Metal magazine. 
The changes proved less positive for Steinman himself, as he and John Caird were replaced as directors by John Rando, best known for the Tony Award-winning musical comedy You're in Town. Rando was undoubtedly talented, but he had never worked on a show this big before, and it quickly got the better of him. The cast and crew seemingly ended up doing whatever they wanted, which meant that Michael Crawford reportedly became even more demanding. There seemed to be no singular creative force shaping Dance of the Vampires, as evidenced by the new choreographer John Carafa staging dance numbers by telling the performers to just rock on. Steinman put on a brave face for the press, but behind the scenes he was fuming. He would later describe the show as a runaway train, saying, We ended up with two shows at war with each other. One was sensual and gothic, the other was Camp Rocky Horror. I knew the critics would kill us for that. We were the perfect target, a fat lady with a sign on her back that said, kick me. Steinman claimed that he chose to stop coming to the theatre regularly after that, although it was later revealed that he was fired from his own show by his own manager. Finally, previews started at the Minskov Theatre, which is currently the home of The Lion King on Broadway. For a while, things seemed to be going surprisingly well. Ticket sales during previews were strong, with the show in fourth place in terms of top-selling Broadway grosses without even having officially opened. The inherent problems with the material, however, remained. Crawford and Aubergenois still hated each other and kept stepping on one another's jokes. The grab bag of producers and creators needed to find comfortable middle in between the two shows at war with each other, and now was the only time they could do that. Ironically, this led to the show moving closer in style towards the source material it had tried so hard to overcome. 30% of the dialogue was cut and a new ending set in the modern day was added. And then the show was locked in for its real opening night. Eventually, after 61 previews, Dance of the Vampires opened on December 2nd, 2002. There's nothing I can do, a total Michael Crawford returns to Broadway in Dance of the Vampires. A bitingly funny new musical from the composer of Bat Out of Hell. Ticketmaster for the one new musical that really bites. Dance of the Vampires. Thanks, old everybody. Reviews were harsh. Talking Broadway said, Should you head to the Minskoff, you'll probably enjoy most if you bring low expectations. And earplugs. Charles Isherwood, writing for Variety, lamented, Michael Crawford will live to rue the day he chose this ludicrous musical as the vehicle for his Broadway return. He'll cringe at the mortifying makeup job, which makes him look like a drag queen whose vanity mirror could use a few more light bulbs. And the pseudo-mullet wig, scarier than any of the show's other special effects. Even now he must know his expressive, reedy singing voice deserves more distinguished material. In 2016, Time Out named it one of the worst Broadway musicals of the millennium. Quoting from their original review, Subtle this ain't. The overamped vampires doesn't pre just preach that beggar is better. Louder, brighter, and hammier work too. Why have one dancing vampire when you can crowd the stage with half a dozen Draculas kicking up their heels? Jim Steinman didn't even bother to turn up to the show's opening. He made sure everyone within a thousand mile radius knew that he wasn't happy with the Broadway version of Dance of the Vampires, writing on his blog that DOTV as we know it was utter shit. The show that I wrote is not at the Minskoff. The show that is dear to me is still running in Vienna. The one at the Minskoff was just a job. To this day, Steinman is careful to remind fans that the Broadway version and the European version of the show are totally different, and he only claims one is his own work. 
On January 25th, 2003, after 56 performances, Dance of the Vampires closed. According to the New York Times, it was one of the costliest failures in Broadway history, losing roughly $12 million. When looking into why Dance of the Vampires fails in comparison to its source material, it's very easy to just point at the whole thing and be all, they fucked up a perfectly good musical is what they did. Look at it. It's got Michael Crawford as some sort of Italian Elvis. And while, yes, that may certainly be a very accurate, if meme-referential, summary of the result, the many problems can be traced back to several things. The main offenders, though, are a lack of identity, an absence of love for the tropes and influences that the original music had, and Michael Crawford's ego. Songs were cut or changed entirely, new scenes added at the expense of character development, and the sung-through nature of the show was discarded in favour of cheesy one-liners. The result was a lifeless and humorless shell of the original that fell flat on its face. Here's one of the most egregious examples, the invitation to the ball. In Tanz de Vampira, Sarah has successfully managed to manipulate the love-struck Alfred into letting her have his time in the inn's new bathroom. As she luxuriates in the bubbles with her sponge, a shadow passes over the window above. A voice calls out to her and then, with a flash of lightning and a bang, Graf von Krolock is there before her as she lays naked in the bath. As he sings, he preens and peacocks, teases and tempts, even nicks her a little. He twirls his cape and climbs the rim of the bath to stand over her as he promises to give her the passion and adventure she's been longing for. The climax is the invitation to the midnight ball. He leans over her, offers her his hand and she rises from the tub to accept it, before being interrupted by young suitor Alfred, who alerts the rest of the inn to the presence of the vampire. Guten Abend, hab vor mir keine Angst. Ich bin der Engel, nachdem du verlangst das Warten. Ist bald vorüber, denn ich lade dich ein. Beim Ball des Jahres tanzen wir durch die Nacht, bis deine Sehnsucht einer Frau aus dir macht. In Dance of the Vampires, Sarah has already been bitten by the Count after an encounter in the woods in the opening minutes of the show. This is not his grand introduction to her. As she lays in her bed, Professor Abronzius diagnoses her condition as being a hemi-demi-semi-vampire, but not yet a full one. After much chaos in the room following this, which includes a duet with Alfred and a song where Chagall begs Sarah not to leave her daddy, Sarah is left to rest, until a bat appears at her window. A really poorly designed puppet bat that disappears into the shadows to become the Count. His invitation to the ball is initially extended just verbally, and when he does sing his invitation, it's anemic. What was once a dramatic solo is now just another moment of Crawford on stage, accompanied by bad jokes and a marked absence of charm and sensuality. Oh, blue nightmare comes so rarely. Why, what do you 
to me. What was once an invitation to a ball where as they danced through the night, Sarah's desire would make a woman out of her, has now become that. A bathtub invitation may seem a strange thing to focus on, but it's one iconic to both the original film and the German language musical. In the film, Sarah realises the window to the room has been opened when snowflakes fall in front of her. She looks up to see the Count climb down and is promptly attacked. The original musical changes this moment of violence into one of an interrupted seduction and a display of why someone might wish to become a vampire after all. Here is where that loss of identity comes in. Instead of Tanse Vampira or Fearless Vampire Killers, this is Dracula. It is Van Helsing, aided by a young Seward, examining an already bitten Lucy Westenra. Familiar to an audience, but that's because it's the wrong story. Sarah is not some sleepwalking waif to be taken advantage of. She is the girl who heard the vampire's lament earlier in the show and will put on her fancy new red boots and march through the snow to the castle because, damn it, that's what she wants. It's a frank misunderstanding of the story, the genre, and the characters, and it's a common thread throughout the show. A scene has changed to be more humorous, erasing the gothic seduction that is part of the genre's fantasy. Would you remove Angel of Music from Phantom of the Opera and cut out the phantom appearing in her dressing room to steal Christine away? Because that's basically what's happened here. Speaking of the phantom, a good part of his mystery and allure is that he is not physically present for much of the show, although his presence is felt. Graf von Krolok is the same in Tanz der Vampira, appearing after the introduction of all the major human characters. While Graf von Krolok is one of the stars, if not the star, he is still the antagonist. He needs to be in the shadows and let the protagonist breathe and develop. This doesn't happen in Dance of the Vampires. Remember that ego of Michael Crawford's? If an excuse could be made, however flimsy, for Crawford to be on stage and the centre of attention, then he takes it. He first appears emerging from an upright coffin covered in Vegas-esque lights to speak to Sarah directly and take a little nibble. The mystery and allure of his presence is wiped out in one moment. That change to the opening sequence also removes the first impression Alfred, Krolok's rival for Sarah's attention, has on the audience. Instead of the show opening with Alfred wandering through the snow looking for the foolish academic he has decided to follow, he now appears with little fanfare to the point of not even seeming like the protagonist he is. Like the afterthought he has become, he just walks into the inn behind a bronzius. He's not the desperate young man who had literally carried his frozen mentor to safety. Just some guy wandering through a door. There's no establishment of Alfred's nature as one determined to play the hero, even when the odds are against him. That makes up the bulk of his original characterization, but that is cut all in service to... what, exactly? Another instance of the Count unnecessarily appearing in another character scene is the second act song, Books, Books. In the original, Birchia Birchia, after sneaking around the castle to discover the library there, Abronzius delights in what he has found with a rapid-fire song, while Alfred wanders off in search of Sarah. In Dance of the Vampires, it's no longer a demonstration of the actor's speed and control, but instead a slow duet between the Professor and the Count. 
We know from his performance of the song Logic in Act 1 that René Aubergenois can most certainly keep pace with such a rapid song. So why was it slowed down so dramatically? Was the rumoured jealousy on the part of Crawford the reason why the song became a duet, but Crawford's limited singing ability necessitated the change in pace? Aristoteles, Empedocles, Aeneas, Parmenides und Nikomachos, Diogenes, Antiochus, Maimonides. Schon beim Riechen spüren wir die Weisheit der Griechen. Sie, sie wartet hier irgendwo. Augustinus, Tacitus, Tibull und Plato, Peregrinus und Aquinus, Cäsar, Cicero und Cato. Schon beim Tasten wird man zum Enthusiasten. Heraklitus und Empedocles. Yes, Nikomachos, Diogenes. Of course. Callimachus, Demosthenes, Antiochus, Maimonides, they're sages, living between all these pages. Aurelius and Augustine, Tacitus and Plato, Peregrinus and Aquinas, Caesar, Cicero and Cato, merely browsing, stimulating and arousing. While the lyrics mostly remain the same, the tone and the feel and the pacing of the song has been changed entirely by the presence of the Count. Just like every other scene he shows up where he was not originally. Like the new sequence where the Count, and I say this sarcastically, manages to outwit Chagall and trick him into inviting the Count into the inn. While the Count is dressed as a woman, Madame von Krolock. Was Crawford so desperate for a few minutes more of stage time that he was like, yes, I'll do it in drag and it'll be fantastic. Good evening, Mr. Chagall. Madame von Kroak. Do you have any blood red silk, Mr. Chagall? Suitable for a ball gown? Of course, Countess. Rebecca, silk, mother, silk, yeah, yeah. And how is your daughter, Mr. Chagall? The fair Sarah. My Sarah, my prize, my jewel. She has a birthday soon, does she not? Yes, madame, in two nights. At the total eclipse of the moon? We could go on and on about the hows and the whys that Dance of the Vampires butchers the source material, but we've tortured ourselves enough with the research and the analysis, and you with that last clip. It's been nearly 20 years since Dance of the Vampires burned to ash under the unhappy audience response and scheming critical reviews. Has enough time passed for Tanstead Vampira to have a second chance at an unlife in the English language? As much as we wish it would, no, probably not. Dance of the Vampires was such a legendary bomb that any thoughts of a redo will be tainted by that knowledge. It doesn't matter how successful the show has been in Austria, Germany, Russia, France, Japan and many other countries besides. All that matters is that what happened in the US was bad. Dance of the Vampires was a laughingstock. It blew its massive budget and upset the original creators so much that they disavowed it completely. You really can't come back from that. Before you say maybe it was a fluke, there's a reason people say vampire musicals don't work on Broadway, despite massive success everywhere else in the world. In 2004, Frank Wildhorn's take on Bram Stoker's Dracula premiered on Broadway and ran for only 154 performances. And that's the more successful one. A retooling, not to mention translation, had the musical finding greater success in Europe and Asia, but it hasn't really returned to English-speaking audiences outside of local theatre. Two years after that, Lestat, the musical based on the best-selling Vampire Chronicles series by Anne Rice, debuted on Broadway, and promptly shut after just 39 performances. 
The reason behind that epic failure is a story for another night. Maybe someone who loves and understands Tanz the Vampira will bring it to the West End, and there it will be a gothic spectacle with glittering capes and electric guitars and vampiric laments. Perhaps the West End success of another Steinman musical, Bad Out of Hell, is a step in that direction, or a sign that a redo of Tanz the Vampira is redundant. So if there's no chance of a stage show, maybe a cast recording with a proper English translation? That would be nice. There are several actors from the German language version who are capable of doing it. But until that miracle comes to pass, the best that we have are fan translations and performances, and those are few and far between. However, for many fans of the show, there is no need for a second English attempt. It is still a massive success in Europe, with the show having runs across the continent. After a second revival at Oberhausen was cut short by the ongoing pandemic, the show is due to reopen in Stuttgart later in 2021. Just like the vampires at its heart, Tanz der Vampira continues to live on long after the death of Dance of the Vampires. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode of Fangthology. This episode was written, edited and narrated by Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. We hope that you will join us in our explorations into the weird, the wonderful, and the what the bleep of vampire pop culture. Please like, share, and review us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. For more information and links to our research, check out our website, fangthology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, also Fangthology. Thanks again for being with us, and we will see you soon.